study of 1 Timothy. And uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis. <laughs> That's what we'll be doing tonight. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, just kind of get your head here. And while you're turning there, uh, it's easy to find, by the way, right after the table of contents. Um, so I became a Christian when I was uh, 15 years old. I was in high school. I uh, grew up in a very, very secular culture. I uh, grew up in a culture um, down in um, Southern California where things were, you know, what, what was normal in, in my culture was um, not a lot different, actually, than, than culture today. But I remember one time in particular, I don't think I've told this story before to you guys. I was, uh, I'd only been a Christian a matter of months. I started attending a church, a nearby small little church, and um, they, had a, they had a great youth group. And one of the volunteers, one of the youth workers, took a couple of us out for the day, went and did some stuff. I think we went down to the beach, got some lunch. We're driving back into town. As we're coming back in town, um, I was uh, riding shotgun and uh, the, the youth worker was, was driving and somebody cut in front of us. And where I grew up, we were, white, we were way too sophisticated. You didn't, you didn't honk your horn or flash your lights or anything. Um, when someone cut you off like that, um, and the driver was busy, so I thought I would just kind of take care of things for him. So there we are, a couple of kids in the youth group and a youth worker, and I just rolled, very calmly rolled down the window, and I stuck my arm out the window, and I raised a finger in the air, and I saluted the person next to me. Now, what I didn't know was that he was the head of the deacon board at our small little church. <laughs> I wasn't aware of that, and the, the youth worker just looked absolutely like he was going into defib or something, and, and he, he pulled off the road, and he just slammed the brakes, and he looked at me, and he just yelled, you know, what are you doing? And I was like, seriously, I was like, what? I just, I'm like, the, the, he's like, what are you doing? And I said, well, he's a terrible driver. And on a, you know, on a scale of one to 10, I gave him a one. That's, that's what I did, you know? And of course, he's looking at me like just, just horrified. And he said, I don't understand. He's like, what? Why would you do that? And I said, well, why wouldn't I do that? Everyone, everyone does that. And he said to me, well, Christians don't do that. And I said, yeah, they do. I see him do it all, see him do it all the time. He's like, well, Christians shouldn't do that. And I asked him, well, well, why not? Why wouldn't Christians do that? And he explained to me, he said, well, because, you know, that, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit in someone's life is love. And, you know, Christians should be filled with peace and forgiveness and patience and kindness and gentleness and, and for heaven's sake, self-control. You know, the, those are not those are not things that we do. And so I remember telling him, but I, I was honestly, genuinely confused. I said, but I don't understand. Everyone does it. And he began to explain to me that for Christians, it is not the culture that determines for us what is right and wrong and how we live. It is the word of God. Now that's very different than the way that a lot of people, even Christians live today. The way a lot of people live today is they look at culture Right? They, and and they, they think that's what's normative. People drive around, they get upset, they, you know, give people a rating from one to 10. Uh, you know, people uh, have sex outside of marriage, that's normative. This is what people do in our culture. So a lot of people, they think that, that culture is normative. And then when they read something in the Bible that's different, a lot of times they'll say, well, there's something wrong with the Bible. Now, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll think, well, that was Moses or that was Paul or that was Jesus. But the thing was, culture was different back then. And things are, you know, than they are today. So the Bible doesn't really apply to our situation today because culture has changed. But instead, here's what a Christian does. What a Christian does is they open their Bible 
and they let God define what is normative, all right? What does our culture know about normative? Nothing, all right? Normative is what God intended for lives to be like before the fall, be, before sin, how we, how we relate to one another, how we do life, how we were created to live and, and to coexist. That's what we should exp, uh, um, aspire to is what God says is right and what God says is normal. So we don't, as Christians at Gateway, we don't, we don't come to the Bible and when it differs from culture, we don't say, well, there's something wrong with the Bible. When the Bible and culture clashes, we look at culture and say, we say there's something wrong with culture. Now I say that because the passage that we're going to begin to look at tonight is one of those passages that a lot of people read and the first thing they do is they say, well, this is written by a guy 2,000 years ago. Culture was different. It has nothing to do with us today. So let me just kind of read it for you and you'll get an idea of what we're talking about. First Timothy 2 verse 11. So we're continuing on from last week. This is what he says. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was created first and then Eve. And then a hush came over the crowd. <laughs> now, a couple things. First of all, he's talking within the context of the church. And he's talking about leadership in the church. And he's talking about teaching in the church. In order to rightly understand what it is that Paul's going to say to us. Right? He under, what he's saying is we need, to, we need to go back all the way to the beginning of creation. And we need to consider some things. In fact, this is what Paul does and this is what Jesus does when addressing the issues of male and female relationships. They go back to Genesis. They go back to creation. So that's what we are going to do today. I, I told you last week, this sermon and next week's sermon they go together. They're a package deal. Next week is kind of the fireworks, but this week I'm just going to kind of lay down the foundation. We're going to do what Paul does in the middle of this. We're going to go to creation. We're going to go back to Genesis. So let's talk about gender and creation. Back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you know that. First of all, notice in the beginning. All right. So this is, this is how things started for us. It says that God is the one who created. God is the one who is uncreated. God is the one who has always been. God is the eternal one. And he created the physical world. And through a succession of days, God created the world that you and I now live in. Going ahead to verse 27, and we're going to kind of skip through chapters 1, 2, and 3. It says this, God created man, notice, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then notice, male and female, he created them. So here's a, here's a simple but profound distinction, okay? God created men and God created women. And according to this verse, gender is based on creation. It is not based on culture. Now that's different than a lot of what we hear today. In the 60s, there was a, a feminism that said that we are all born gender neutral. Our plumbing is different. You may have heard this. Our plumbing's different, right? But other than that, we're all gender neutral and, and culture conditions people to either play with Barbies or to pretend that everything is a gun, okay? So that's like, that's what culture, so what in the 60s feminism said, no, it, we're, not, we're not created different. We make each other this way. It's culture that, that shoves little girls into playing with dolls and, and makes little boys turn everything into guns, all right? It's not genetic, it's culture. But of course, the question that has to be asked is, yeah, but who shaped culture? Well, men and women, right? And why did men and women shape culture that way? 
Because they were created that way. It goes back to creation, right? I mean, I could ask, how many moms in here can testify that, that boys and girls are, are born differently, from, like from birth? Anybody? Like, yes, they're different, right? They're not a blank slate. They're created in a particular way. So part of what we have to understand here is that to be female or to be male is not to be good or bad or better, all right? It's just different. Are they equal? As I understand scripture, yes, men and women are equal. They were both created in the image of God. They are God's image bearers. And because of that, women have nothing to prove to men. Men have nothing to prove to women. You are God's image bearers. You have dignity. Because of that, you have worth and equality, right? You have giftings and you have a savior who values you and died for you. When God created men and women, he declared that they were very good. And then it goes on in verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, notice, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates him and God gives him a job description. He says, I want you to, to multiply. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to have a bunch of kids. And then I want you to raise those kids to love God and to serve God and each other and to do good things. And he says, I want you to subdue and rule over the earth. And I think part of that is to create a culture that is intended to glorify God. And then he goes on in verse 31 and says, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. Men, very good. Women, very good. And then Genesis 2 recounts creation, kind of goes back, and it fills in some details that chapter 1 does not give us. And we start before um, God created women. Adam is in the garden. Adam is by himself. In verse 18 of chapter 2, it says, Then the Lord God said, notice, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So, first of all, God says it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, there's no sin yet in the world. So what does it mean if it's not good? Well, it's not sinful. He's just not complete. He's not complete. Remember, man is an, is, is, bears the image of God. Yet here's something that we know about God and we talk about this a lot. God exists in community, right? God exists in a community. There are three parts of God. There's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Three in one, equal in community. And yet man is all by himself. So he's been created in the image of God, but he does not yet live in community as his God lives in community. See, God is above him and creation is, is beneath him, but he has no partner beside him. So here was God's plan. God would create woman, a helper suitable for him. Now, some people, when you read that, some people find that offensive. They find it, they find it belittling that it says that a woman was created to be a suitable helper for the man. And I think that says a lot about our culture when that gets people worked up and they feel like that's belittling. Like, since when was it belittling to be helpful? Like Psalms in Hebrews says that God is our helper is that a put down that God is one who helps? Jesus calls the Holy Spirit our helper, our, our paraclete. Jesus himself came not to, not to be served, but to serve, right? So since when did it become a put down to be a helper? But that's, that's part of our culture. And that's one of the things that's very wrong about our culture. In verse 24, it goes on and it says, for this reason, 
A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So here's one view that people have when they read this, this passage. They say, this is describing a goal for young single men. All right, guys, notice, here's the plan. All right, at some point, this young man leaves his parents' house. All right, so he leaves the house, he, he gets a job, he sets up a home, and then he, he convinces a father that he is worthy of his daughter. That, that's what he does. Because the biblical picture is this, right? Like the young man's over here, and the young woman's over here, and the father's right in the middle. That is the biblical picture. And the job of this young man is to set up a home and to set up such a life that he can convince, he's got to get through the father before he gets to the daughter. That's the plan, dads, and that's the plan, daughters. That's the way that it was intended to work. So what he does is he moves out, he becomes independent, he sets up a home, and then he gets married, which is so backwards often from our culture today, where it's the woman who has the discipline to leave the home, to get a job, to set up the house, and then her deadbeat boyfriend moves in and just mooches off her and has a sexual relationship with her. But we're Christians. We don't roll down the window and, and wave to people when they cut us off. And we don't, you know, we don't, this is not the way we do things in our world. The men go out, set up a home, get a job, convince some dad somewhere, somewhere that he's worthy of his daughter. All right? But today, amen. We have it. We have it backwards. Right. So in, so in Genesis 2, here, just notice this. The man was formed out of dust, and God breathed life into the man. And then he took the woman out of his side. Now, some of your translations will say took a, took a rib, but literally it means from the side. And that, that paints a beautiful picture. As one commentator said, the, the woman doesn't belong in front of him, and she doesn't belong behind him. She belongs next to him because they are, they are partners. They are, they are one flesh. A husband and wife are one flesh. Think about that for a minute. Now, in Ephesians, it tells us this is a mystery. And I'm glad that Paul says that in Ephesians because I'm glad he actually put into words what I've wondered about. Like, how does this work? Anyways, how do they become one flesh? Because it doesn't always seem like it, does it? It doesn't always look like it. In, in, In fact, the phrase one flesh or one there is the same word that she used to describe the Trinity. So some people have said there's kind of a, a mystery in the husband and wife, one flesh, like the Trinity, the three being one. In fact, it's used by Paul to describe Christ and the church. That the Christ and the church are one the way a husband and wife are one. It's a big deal, all right? Do we fully understand it? No. Is it a big deal? Yes. And in verse 25, he goes on and it says, and the man and his wife Oh, you got to love this. They were both naked. You don't get to say that word in church a lot. They were both naked, or as one pastor friend says, naked, but they were naked and they were, notice, and they were not ashamed. So just get this picture, right? And there's guys like going, I love this verse. Like they were, they were, they were one. They, they had an intimate relationship. There was nothing between them, literally. They were naked and they had, they had no shame. I mean, really, when you think about this, this, isn't a, this is describing an amazing relationship. This is marriage before sin. There is no division. There is no tension. There is no secrets. There's no shame. There's just oneness. There's just, there's just beauty. And there's acceptance. It's such a wonderful, beautiful thing. And then chapter 3 comes along. And in chapter 3, everything changes. In chapter 3, there's a new character that, that's injected into the story. 
It's a guy named Satan. You probably heard of him. Satan was created by God. Some people think that, that Satan and God are like black and white and they, you know, they're, they're plus and minus. They're, you know, yin and yang and they've always existed in battle. It's not true. Okay, Satan is not an eternal being. He was created by God as an angel. We're told he may have been the most beautiful and lofty and, and wise angel that there was. And yet it says that he, he really... Apparently, he had some real pride issues and, and thought that he could do better than God. And, and so it says that he, he, he was kicked out of heaven because he rebelled. And when he was kicked out of heaven, a third of the angels went with him. They became demons, and they are waging war against God on the earth to this day. And in verse 1 of chapter 3, the story goes on. It says, now the, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, so he comes to the woman. People have asked, why did he go to the woman? That's like a whole nother, not whole nother story altogether we could talk about, which we don't have time for. But he goes to the woman. He doesn't go to the man. He goes to the woman because he's cunning, right? And he says, and he says, he begins to have a conversation with Eve. Did God actually say, Satan says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God, did God really say that? So he's cunning. He goes to Eve he doesn't go to Adam, right? Adam was created first. Adam is the leader. He doesn't go to Adam. He goes to Eve. And now we know what God said. God had said that they could eat of any tree in the garden but one. Any tree but one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan comes along and says, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree? Did God say that? No. What's he doing? He's doing what he always does. Satan takes God's words and he subtly twists it. Sometimes he adds Sometimes he, he subtracts. It's the same thing he did with Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 in the, during the temptation. And he still does it today. Add a little, subtract a little, get people off base, question God's word. That's how you get cults and heresies and all that kind of stuff in the false doctrine that's going on in the church in Ephesus that we're talking about in 1 Timothy. In verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, She said, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Did God say that? Yes. Yeah, so she's, she's getting him straightened out. And then she says, neither, neither shall you, what? Touch it lest you die. So now this is where it gets weird because God never said that. God never said, don't even touch it. So of course it, it begs some questions like, what's going on here? You know, where did this come from? Was, so we're left with a couple of options. First of all, her husband was just like a really pathetic Bible teacher, right? Because remember, God didn't speak this to Eve. He spoke it to Adam. And Adam was supposed to pass it on Eve. So maybe he wasn't a very good teacher. Maybe she wasn't a good student. She didn't take notes. I don't know. I'm not sure what it was. Maybe she just liked to make things up. I, I don't know. We don't know where she got this from. But in verse 4, it says, But the servant said to the woman, You will not surely die. So what's he doing? He's calling God a liar. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's his point? Don't miss this. His point is this. God and your husband are holding you back. So a lot of times we think about the 60s feminism and think it was something new. It was nothing new because it's been around since the beginning of, of humanity. Right? What's he saying? Eve, you can be like God. Well, Satan ought to know this because this is what he thought. 
and it didn't work for him, but he goes to Eve and says, you know what, man, you could be liberated from God's word. You could be liberated from God's authority. You could be liberated from your husband's authority. God has his will, but you've got yours. God has his opinion, but you should be able to have yours. God and your husband are holding you down. You don't have to stay there. You can do something about it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was what? With her. Okay, that's kind of important. And he ate as well. There's an old saying that says when Adam was away, he fell astray, but it's not true because he was there the whole time. What's he doing? He's doing nothing. I don't know if he's watching ESPN. I don't know what he's doing. He's not leading. He's not, he's not protecting her. He's not running interference. He's not slapping Satan away, right? He's not correcting. He's not doing anything. But to be fair, she's not asking for anything, is she? Right? She didn't look at Adam and say, is this true? So she's not asking for help, and he's not offering help. This is how it went down. And I think, you know, for many Christian wives today, this is kind of their story. I hear this a lot. You know, my husband is just spiritually distracted. He's weak. He won't lead. He won't pray. He's a coward. He won't correct. He won't stand up. You know, he doesn't handle the Bible well. And so for many women, they say, you know, the enemy is attacking my home, attacking my kids, and, and somebody has to stand up, and somebody has to fill the leadership void, and my husband won't do it. So I think many well-meaning women do it in their homes, and also oftentimes do it in their churches when men won't stand up, and men won't lead, and men won't teach, and men won't sacrifice. And the women think somebody's got to step in and do something. But notice what happens. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they, I'm going to go down south sometime and preach. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. Now there's, now there's distance between men and women. Now there's mistrust. Now there's division. Now there's raw stress for less between men and women, right? They got the fig leaves going on. There's a lot of fig leaves today in marriage relationships, isn't there? There's a lot of things that divide us. There's prenuptial agreements. There's private investigators. There's, there's living together. People were like, I just don't even know if I can trust you. And, and so we'll just live together. There's, there's separate finances because of there's a lack of trust. There's emotional buffers. I'll only let you get so close. Sometimes I see this couple get married, but one of them maintains their old life. Their old, their old flames just in case kind of keep track of them on Facebook because you never know if it's going to work out or not. There's a lot of fig leaves that people have in their marriage relationships today. And then in verse eight, it says this, and then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid from the Lord. You know, I read that. I'm like, that's what little kids do, right? When, you know, when your kids are really small and they sin or they break a rule and they feel shame and the parent comes walking in the room, what do they do? They, they run, they hide, they won't look at, you know, they won't look you in the eye, right? They'll, they'll try to change the subject, just look really cute, you know, or, or, you know, when they should be repenting. And I think adults have a lot of sophisticated ways of hiding from God as well, right? When we grow up, it's not like we just learn to, to own our sin and to repent. We just really learn how to, we're sophisticated. So some people hide from God with their theology, 
right? They read Bible passages that they don't like, and so they'll just, they find loopholes, right? This doesn't apply to me. It was cultural, right? It's, yeah, I'm better than this. We find loopholes in the Bible. It's one of the ways that we, that we hide from God. Or maybe we only come to church when, when, you know, the pastor's preaching on stuff we want to, we want to hear about. I don't know why you're here tonight. So, um, you know, or we just, we don't read the Bible or we avoid, we avoid certain passages of, of scripture or we avoid conversations with our, with spiritual friends because we don't, we want to, we want to hide from God. We don't, we, we don't want conviction. It's not what we want. So there's a pattern that begins to emerge here, by the way, all the way back in Genesis chapter three. When people sin, they don't go looking for God. It's not the pattern right? The pattern is that God made us, that God loves us, that God established a relationship that we sinned and we walked away from God and we don't walk back toward God. It's not what we do. It's not our nature. So God comes after us. God makes, God makes a way for us to get right with him. That's what God does. That's why Jesus came. We don't go looking for God. God comes looking for us. And that's what happens here in verse nine. But the Lord God called to the man. He says, where are you? Now, it's not like God's walking through, like going, I have no idea where they went. You know, it's just like, he knows where they are, all right? Now, now, but think about this for a minute. Who sinned first? Eve or Adam? Okay, who sinned first? Well, Eve is the one who ate first, but who's responsible? Adam is. So who does God come looking for? God comes looking for Adam, right? Now, Eve is responsible for her sin, but Adam is responsible for the family, in fact, Romans 5 just kind of paints this picture for us that, that when Adam sinned, sin entered into the world. When Adam sinned, that's what it was when Adam sinned that, that creation was infected and, and that humanity was infected. And it says that our sin nature is passed down through men, not through women. It's passed down through the man. So for instance, that's why Jesus was born of a woman and could still be without sin because the, the sin is passed down through the man. Adam was held responsible. And so God's walking through the garden, and even though Eve sinned first, he's walking through the garden, and he's asking Adam, where, where are you? Right? Where are you? And this could be asked of a lot of men today. Right? Where, where are you? Right? Your wife needs you to step up and lead. Where, where are you? Your kids need you to intervene. Where are you? What what are you doing, right? I, I was reading a statistic, two statistics this week that I thought could not be true when I read them. So I went in, looked online, looked on the census and was shocked. It's just kind of crazy stuff. But did you know that in our nation right now, one third of children that are born have no father named on the birth certificate? And, and right now, 43% of children that go to, to bed at night in America, 43% have no father in the home. 40 3%. When I read that, I thought that absolutely cannot be true. Someone's making that up. And yet as I look through the statistics, in fact, it's absolutely true. And I think that still today, God says to men, where are you? Your family needs you. Your wife needs you. They need you to step up. Where are you? What are you doing? And so God walks through the garden. He's like, Adam, where are you? And it goes on. And he says, he says, I heard you in the garden, Adam says. And I was afraid because I was naked, right? So I, I hid. And then God, God, you know, when Jesus was on earth, he asked a lot of great questions. But, but God the Father asked some great questions too. He says, well, who told you you were naked, right? It's kind of a rhetorical question, but he's like, wait a minute. Who told you that? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? How did you know you were, you were naked, Adam, right? And, and the man said, now, you got to love this. 
I think you have to read it with the accusatory tone, which is, which is implied. The woman, now a lot of people put the emphasis on the woman. That's not where I put it. I think the emphasis is on you. The woman whom you gave me, all right? Are you with me? It almost sounds like he says, the woman that you gave me, God, all right, that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It almost sounds like he's blaming God. Like, like you know, you, you, you made me. I lived in the garden and everything was great. It was awesome. I was like naming things. I was naked. I didn't have to wear clothes. Uh, I was naming stuff. I was eating fruit. The woman shows up and everything's just been crazy ever since, you know. I'm the victim here. I need serious counseling because of this, you know. And, and yet, you know, guys still kind of say that today when they say things like, you know, I think God gave me the wrong woman. I think, I think I got a defective one, you know. I mean, she's okay, but she's not right for me. And I kind of laugh, but I hear this way, I hear this so often by men who absolutely mean it 100%. I think I married the wrong woman. I think, I think God picked out the wrong one for me. And this is why guys go from girlfriend to girlfriend and wife to wife without ever thinking, maybe it's not her, maybe it's you, man. Maybe you're the problem. Maybe it's that you won't step up and take responsibility and be a man and lead your wife and love your wife and serve your wife. But Adam's kind of blaming it on God, blaming it on the woman. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, so he looks at her and he says, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Right, so you've heard that it's the old joke, right? God said, Adam, what have you done? And Adam blamed it on the woman, and the woman blamed it on the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on, right? That's how it goes. So, <laughs> now, the thing about Eve is she actually speaks the truth here, right? She, she actually gets it right, right? I, he lied to me, and, 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 and I was deceived. And then there are the consequences. We think about gender and the curse. In verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, so here's going to kind of hand out some, Punishment here. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and, and between your offspring and her offspring. And, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we've got like a whole bunch, way more stuff here going on than we have time to talk about. But basically he says to Satan, you picked a fight that you are going to lose I'm just going to tell you right now, you're not going to win, and, and you're absolutely going down. And what he says is Adam lost the first round. In fact, Adam didn't even put up a fight, did he? Right? But he says there's another man coming. There's a second man coming. And he's going to be born of the seed of a woman. He's not going to be born of the seed of Adam, but of a woman. God the Father will be his father. And, and it was Jesus. And he will be born of this woman. And, and there will be conflict between him and Satan. There will be a battle. And he says that, that uh, Jesus' heel will be bruised. And this is metaphorically speaking. He's just saying it's like a, you know, like you kind of stub your toe and it, hurt. it hurts, right? A little bit tough. But he says it's not, it's not a mortal wound. He's going he's gonna to rise from the dead. It's going to be okay. But Satan's head will be wounded. And that's the idea of, of a defeat, of a mortal kind of wound. The Proto-Evangelion is what we call this. Theologians call it. They call it the first gospel. Um, Adam can't fix the problem that he's created. And so God is going to send Jesus. 
And Jesus is going to come and he's going to live the perfect life that Adam didn't live. And he's going to go to the cross and he's going to die for the sins of the world. And then going on in verse 16, it says, To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Amen, woman? Anybody? No? Okay. With pain, you will give birth to your children. And your desire will be for your husband, and, and he will rule over you. And so he says there'll be, there'll be pain in childbearing. That's why, well, that's why we have legalized drug dealers in hospital rooms, right? They're called anesthesiologists. I, like, I watched my wife give birth to our three kids, and I needed an epidural. It's just like, it's really, I don't know how, women, I don't know how you do it. But he says it's going to be painful. And then he makes a very interesting statement, one that has just caused debate among linguists and, and theologians when he says your desire will be for your husband. Husband. So now some people will read that and think, well, it means she'll just really desire her husband. But there's a lot of linguists who say that's actually almost the opposite of what it's really trying to say here in the original language. The same phraseology is used in Genesis 4, uh, where God is talking to Cain, and he says, sin is crouching at the door, and it desires to rule over you. In other words, what some people think God is saying here is that women will have a desire to rule over their man. And that's, that's part of the curse. That part of the curse is women will see their husbands as incompetent. I don't know where they get that from. As, as sinful, as clueless, as not taking leadership. They won't make decisions. And so the desire of women at times will be part of the curse is to just boss him around. If, if he can't get it together, you'll get it together for him. And you'll make him to-do lists and you'll threaten to manipulate him with sex or the silent treatment or whatever it is that works. No ESPN tonight, whatever it is that, that works on him, that your desire will be to rule over your husband because he's a lot like Adam. He's a little bit incompetent. He's not really taking the lead. But this is what he says. But he will rule over you. And the idea there is, if I'm understanding it right, what he's saying is, even though that will be your desire to rule over your husband, he must lead. He must be the leader in your home. See, men are to lead. Now let me put this in a just kind of a slight, slightly different way because sometimes when I say that men are to lead the home, what, what many women here I know is they hear this based on their experience. Well, he gets to just boss me around and tell me what to do and, and it's just all about him and I have to watch whatever he wants and eat whatever he wants. And, and just, but you, you understand when you read scripture, what you find out is that is never ever what God had in mind when he talked about the husband leading the wife. In fact, later on in the New Testament, what it tells us is that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died for her. There are women that wish their husbands would do that for them, you know? But that they would serve them, that they would, that they would love them, that they would lead them, that they would comfort them, that they would, that they would be to the wife what Christ was to the church who came not, not to be served, but to serve his wife. And then he goes on and he says this, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Now, some people read that and they say, so is he telling Adam you shouldn't listen to your wife? All right? Uh, that a man shouldn't listen to his wife? Absolutely, obviously not what he's saying because a husband and wife are one in Christ, right? So how can you not have a discussion with yourself? Well, you can, but it doesn't work out well, right? That means for a husband, he should discuss everything 
with his wife. And he should always seek the wisdom of his wife. But what he's saying here, here's what Adam did. Adam, Adam heard what God had to say. He listened to God. And then he heard what his wife had to say. And who did he listen to? Well, he listened to his wife because he did what she said when it contradicted what God said. All he's saying here is that you should always listen to God over everyone, but including your wife. Listen to God. And then he goes on and he says this, cursed is the ground because of you. Ugh, we know that, right? In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles and crabgrass, by the way. Uh, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat of the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. It's just really encouraging. For out of it you were taken and for your dust and to dust you shall return. So all he's saying here is, Adam, you're going to go get a job and your job's going to stink. All right, that's just the way, that's the way. Now, you know, every, man has, I, every man has a crummy job. There's just different degrees, varying degrees of how crummy your job is, right? Like, and here's the, so here's the pattern with young men I found who are going into the, going into the workforce. It's just something I've noticed. Um, usually when young men graduate from college and they're going to go get their first job, they're going to go, they're going to go get their job, you know, so they get their education, they get their job, they have this very, vision of how fun their job is going to be, right? They're going to go and they're going to, there's going to be like donuts, free donuts, and there's going to be beer in the refrigerator, and they're going to have like chair races up and down the hall, and it's just going to be fun all day long. They'll just go home hurting because they'll be laughing and having so much fun, and then they get their job and they find out, oh, this is why they call it work, all right? Because it's actually work, and it's, and it's hard, and there's politics involved, right? And, and you, you sweat a little bit, and it's not what they expected, so they put the the resume out and they're going to get another job that's going to be, and this will be the fun job with the beer in the fridge. And then it turns out to be work. And then after a while, they just get jaded like everyone else and realize that God knew what he was talking about when he said, it's going to be work. He said, cursed is the ground because of you. Now, Adam lives in an agricultural society. So in that world, you know, you, you cultivated the ground, you planted the crop, you cared for the crop, you harvested it, you brought it in. And God just says that the dirt is going to win, guys, all right? You're going to, you were made out of dirt, you're going to work the dirt. You're going to weed the dirt. You're going to, and eventually they'll bury you in it, okay? The dirt's going to win in the end. I think about that every time, every, every spring, and I love to work in the yard, but there's always, you know, there's always weeds. I can never figure out, like, in the spring when I go out in the garden, why it's full of crabgrass and weeds. Why, like, why isn't it naturally, you know, just grow, like, flowers and strawberries, you know, like why aren't there just peaches growing everywhere? It's like, because this is, this is part of the curse. And God wants Adam, I thought this was interesting. One commentator said, God wants, God wants Adam to feel how frustrating it is to have things under his dominion disobey him and complicate his life. Yeah. And in the man, it builds humility. And in men, it builds a dependence on God and it prepares the heart for the gospel. In verse 20, it says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Many look at this passage, and, and, and the idea here is that God didn't just whip out, you know, uh, some uh, leather suit for them um, out of thin air. The idea is that God probably went in the garden and sacrificed some animals. So the first sacrifice, the first blood is shed for sin. Animals, their lives are taken, and God fashions 
skin, that, you know, some, some leather. They're wearing some leather and, and they're clothed. And then in verse 22, and the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, speaking of the Trinity, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So they're kicked out of the garden and into the, the wild world because if they had eaten of the tree of life then they would have remained in that physical state forever in those sin-infected bodies. But God wants to redeem us. Scripture says that God wants to give us a new body and he wants to give us a new earth and a new heaven so that we can start over and live as God intended. And so they were kicked out of the garden. We have spiritual death, but we also have physical death, right? And this is why Jesus came. Jesus came as the second Adam to undo what the first Adam did. I'm going to ask the uh, men if they would uh, go back right now. And we're going to finish up the service tonight by taking communion together. And as they're getting communion ready, I just want to mention this. Next, next week, we're going to come back and we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And, and, and in that passage, we're going to talk about specifically how when Jesus came, okay, how, how he changed a lot of things about uh, the way that men and women relate to one another. The way that, that Jesus approached women was absolutely revolutionary and radical for his day. A lot of things Jesus changed as a rabbi when it came to women. But there was something that he did not change. Jesus continued when it came to men and women. He always went back to creation because Jesus understood that, that male and femaleness is rooted in creation, not in culture. And so next week, we're going to kind of look into the practical application of all this for the church. And that's where it'll probably get real exciting. But I wanted to take today because I, I don't, I don't want to assume that all of us understood the, um, the, the story of creation. And maybe for some of you, you've heard it before, but I hope that it's been meaningful you, for you tonight to kind of set that, that theological foundation for what we'll talk about next week. Now.